This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. My name's Kevin. I'm the lead pastor here at Vortex, and it's great to have you with us today. Um, we are in the last week of a series that we call The Best Of, where throughout the month of July, our folks were given an opportunity to vote over their favorite sermon series that we did over the past year. And then we bring them back for one more week, essentially. And we bring in guest speakers. Essentially, the guest speakers are our overseers. We brought in last week a church planner. And so this week, I'm very privileged to be able to host and bring for you uh, Brandon Cox, who has served as one of our overseers since our church started. Brandon was one of the very first people who breathed life into a vision of planting a life-giving church in a smaller town that had a modern feel to it. And the reason he was able to do that is that a year before um, our church started, they started Grace Hills in Bentonville, Arkansas, which is about 20,000 people, a little bit larger than Albemarle, but still small rural south. And they started in a movie theater just like we did. And, and God has been so good to them. But he's really one of the most brilliant people you would ever meet. Um, and so humble, so unassuming. But there's not a topic that you can pick up that he can't talk to you about and give insight. He has perhaps, out of all of my friends that are my age and in ministry, the greatest heart to pastor people out of anyone that I know. He loves people. He serves his church very well, but he also serves the global church very well. He is an expert in social media and leveraging social media on behalf of the gospel and the church. He's written a book on that, does um, seminars and workshops nationwide to help churches and pastors do a better job of sharing that. And his wisdom has been made available to me for years, and so we are eternally thankful for him. I promise that this message, as we look back at a series that we did last November, where we talked about overcoming the feelings of hurt that exists from, from offense inside of our hearts, that this message today that Brandon has for us has the potential to change many of your lives if you'll just give him a moment and let him speak into your heart. So would you welcome to the stage Brandon Cox. Well, good morning, Vortex Church. I'm so happy to be with you. Have uh, known your pastor for uh, uh, all of these years now, and we've prayed for Vortex since your beginning. Uh, our church has prayed for your church, and there's something special to me about we spent four years doing church in a movie theater and moved into a lease facility about two and a half years ago. We just bought a building we're trying to renovate by the, by the Christmas season to be into it, but I miss worshiping in a movie theater. And, and the main reason is deeply spiritual. It's that there's something about the prayers of God's people ascending up like incense before God mixed with the aroma of buttered popcorn. And really, you don't even need popcorn, just butter. Just the scent of butter is heavenly um, and was a gift from God. Um, 
long before that, uh, before we uh, started Grace Hills Church, I, I spent, I met my wife, Angie, who's here as well, uh, when I was 19. We were 19, or no, I met her when I was 17. We got married when we were 19 and uh, started adult life. I was pastoring a church at that time, and we spent about 15 years serving local churches and sort of doing the church thing and doing the pastor thing. Uh, the thing that I thought I was supposed to be doing and doing it the way I thought I was supposed to be doing it. And uh, throughout those early years, I had sort of this image of what a pastor was supposed to be and what a, what a family is supposed to look like, what a guy is supposed to be. And I thought I was doing okay with all of that. And we spent about 15 years kind of serving in that sort of traditional role. I used to wear my suit and carry a big leather Bible and I uh, even wore cufflinks. That was a weird phase, and I, I tried to forget about it, but um, went through all of that for a long, long time, and throughout those years of ministry was struggling with some things that I didn't realize I was struggling with. From childhood to young adulthood on through, I was a bit of a stuffer and didn't realize it. Uh, things would happen to me early in my life, hurts would come along, things would would hurt me in different ways, and I would just store it away and just think positive and kind of go about my life and, and, and thought I was okay. Uh, about seven, eight years ago, we were called away from uh, Arkansas, where we lived at the time, to Southern California, and I joined the staff of Saddleback Church, and it was a whole different world. Neither of us had ever been to California before that time, and so we had no family. Things are slightly expensive out there. We had this little apartment of 1,200 feet or so, and we were paying 2,200 bucks a month for that. So that was a little different. Uh, we didn't have any family around. And we went from, you know, pastor and pastor's wife, sort of ministry in the trenches together all the time, to me going off to work and her staying at home, uh, sort of doing the home thing. And I was working 50 hours, and we had to work four services a weekend. It was just kind of a crazy life. And the stress of that, of moving across the country, and we have an 11-a-week-old baby at the time. So all of that stress was really beginning to expose some pain and to expose some brokenness that I didn't know we had. There at, at Saddleback Church, we got into a small group. And week one of the small group, first time we went, we got to know the other families, and they would ask, how are, you know, they would go around. They'd say, how are the goalies? And they'd say, oh, we're, we're, here's what's going on in our life. And how are the coterbas? And they would share. And they could say, how are the coxes? And we'd say, we're fine. You know, anyone else do that? How many of you are fine? You're just fine today. Listen, fine stands for frustrated, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. Okay? And so... <laughs> Week after week, I was, oh, we're fine. Life is good. We're, we're maintaining. About four weeks into that, when Angie and I had really begun to, to deal with just a lot of things that were bubbling to the surfaces of our hearts and our lives, and I was struggling with, with a kind of anger and emotional sort of baggage that I'd not felt before. And we're struggling with all of that and the, the testing ground of a, a place far from home where things are expensive and hectic and stressful. All that was just throwing light on all this stuff. And week four of small group, they said, how are the coxes? And my wife goes, we're not doing so good. And I sort of look around like, what's she about to share about our, our personal venture here? And God sort of used that moment and a whole lot of moments since then especially right around that season, 
to expose some things to light that needed to come out of the dark shadows and to, to, to begin to, to heal and to break some of the, the bondage and the strongholds that, that I'd found myself in, that we'd found ourselves in, and, and life began to change. And during that season, God put uh, this vision on our hearts to go back to Bentonville, Arkansas, and plant a church that would deal with real issues, not just religious issues, not just issues for people who are fine, but that we would really dig down deep and be real. And it might work and it might not, but that didn't matter. We were just going to be real even if it didn't work out. I can remember someone uh, out west, uh, not part of our church, but someone else who advised us, if you're going to go to northwest Arkansas, it's the, it's the home of Walmart. And so if you buy anything in Walmart, that brand the company that makes it has an office there. So people are from all over the country and all over the world, and they're all trying to climb the corporate ladder. And somebody said, if you're going to go back there and plant a church, you need to be polished and have your best foot forward and really present well and and make it a great production and all of this. And I remember that just solidified in our minds that we needed to go and be unpolished. Because the fact is, I think all of us are used to walking around life as polished as we can be, as ready to show to others as I can make myself, as fine as I can appear. But beneath the surface, on the inside, we carry this brokenness. And, and every one of us, the, the thing about our particular community, there's probably 110, 120,000 people in that area that are reachable distance-wise from our church. And what we've discovered is that about 110 to 120,000 of those people are broken that every last one of us experiences brokenness, whether we know it or not, whether we've faced it or not, whether we've owned it or not. And Jesus is very concerned about that brokenness. He's very concerned about the things in our lives that hold us captive and prevent us from flourishing and having freedom. What I want to do this morning for just a few minutes as we as we revisit this idea of unhinged, of letting go of offense and letting go of our hurts, I want to just sort of speak some life and some freedom into you, especially those of you who are fine, who are, you, you believe you're doing okay, and the scriptures have a big message for you. The big truth I want to share with you is this. When you rehearse and believe a lie on repeat, you're in what the Bible calls a stronghold, and God gives you the power to break free. I want to dig into that for a few moments this morning because I like to go to Barnes and Noble. When I go to, you know, Kevin introduced me as brilliant and I think, well, no pressure to, you know, get up here now. Got to be brilliant. But the reason I think maybe he thinks I'm brilliant is because I go to Barnes and Noble a lot and I read the spines of books. So I don't really know anything. I just can remember that books have been written about it and I can make something up and sound smart. So that's, that's brilliance, I guess. But I, I can go into Barnes & Noble, and there's a whole section there for self-help books, and there are thousands and thousands of them. Hundreds more are published every year about self-development and self-growth and self-help. And, and, and those books offer some good things, good advice, good wisdom. They might help us think more positively, or they might give us some good coping mechanisms, or give us some skills for leadership and personal growth. Uh, the, the problem is all of them lack something that I believe we desperately need in our lives. They ultimately lack the power 
to actually change us. I can collect information, I can go to seminars, I can go to counseling, I can show up at church to see if that might fix my problem. But what I really need is the power of God to be operating and at work in my situation. I want to read a passage of scripture that's somewhat familiar, but it, it says in 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, the phrase I want you to, to zero in on is when he says, on the contrary, the weapons that we fight with, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. That the Bible gives us not just wisdom and information and advice, but the Bible communicates to us about Jesus who actually gives us the power to change, the power to deal with some of the strongholds in our lives. Now, if you're not sure what a stronghold is, again, it's just believing and repeating a lie. If you do that, you're in a stronghold. I want to share with you five big essential truths today about life that all kind of go together to help us discover freedom. So these five big ideas that I want to share to you, we're packing a whole lot in. This could be expanded into a whole series or seminar, but we're going we're gonna to cover very quickly some principles that I think are very important for me to learn in my life if I want to experience freedom and God's power. And the first one is this, bondage in my life starts with a lie. Bondage starts with a lie. The spiritual bondage that we find ourselves in, the strongholds in which we live, the things that we have carried, the offenses we've collected, the unforgiveness that we feel, the, the hatred, the emotion that bubbles out as anger and rage, all of that begins with a simple, subtle lie. And it works its way into our mind, and it takes root there. And, and those lies come from different sources. I, I believe that we receive some of those lies from without. We, we receive them from other people. That we receive them from people who have hurt us in the past. It, it's possible that you have been hurt, that you've been damaged, that you have uh, pain has been inflicted on you by someone else, by their manipulation or their cruelty or their abuse. And, and you need to know that is not your fault, that is not your responsibility, but sometimes that moment communicated something to you that simply isn't true, but you're rehearsing it over and over again. Lies such as, I'm just not worthy. I'm just not lovable. No one could ever really love me unconditionally and faithfully. I'll just never be good enough. I'll never be qualified. God would never want me. People would never want me in their life. Those are all lies, and they dominate us if we allow them. They take root and just begin to infect different areas of our lives, and they come from without. It may be that in a moment of abuse, you began to believe that you weren't worth protecting. That isn't true. That in a moment of neglect, that, that you began to believe that no one wanted to be in your life. That isn't true, but it's a lie 
that took root. Some of the lies we believe come from within. That is, I, I sort of plant them in my own life. I grab onto error and begin to believe it and rehearse it and, and communicate it to myself as though it's true. Some of those lies also definitely come from beneath. They are lies that we believe that smell like smoke because they're from the pit of hell that Satan himself whispers those things to us in a moment of pain, in a moment of trial, and it begins to take root, and we find ourselves in a stronghold. And when you're in a stronghold, you start asking questions like, why can't I get over this? Why can't I stop doing this? Why can't I break free of this? Why, how long am I going to feel this way? What am I going to do with all this anger? Why can't I get life straight? And most of us get up on Sunday morning and, and go to church, and we're okay, we're fine. We, we go to school throughout the week, go to work, and we're fine. Uh, we can function okay most of the time, but every once in a while, just the right moment, the right tension, the right pain point throws some light on the darkness, and it all comes bubbling out, okay? I want to deal with those in a very honest and, and forthright way. So bondage begins with a lie. Second big truth is this, the lie becomes a foundation for a stronghold of lies. That is, I begin to believe it, repeat it, rehearse it, tell myself different variations of it, and the next thing I know, I'm trapped in a habit, in an addiction. I am distant from God. I'm, I'm, I'm failing in my relationships, my marriage, and my friendships. It, it's all falling apart because I keep acting in ways that I don't quite understand because of lies that I keep believing. I'm in a stronghold. Third big truth is this, freedom starts when we repent. Freedom starts when we repent. When I say the word repent, some of you get a certain image and others of you get a different image because that word carries a lot of baggage with it. I sort of grew up in a movement where I think the word repent had to do with emotion, that if I was sorry enough, if I felt badly about myself enough, then God in his mercy might be willing to receive me. It's kind of a sort of a mountain religion version of Christianity that's not really the gospel, but some of us emphasize the emotional side of repentance, and we define it that way. For others of you, repentance is just confessing stuff. The problem is confessing stuff and admitting things, well, that gets it out there, but it doesn't necessarily produce change. And so repenting is not just admitting things. It isn't just feeling bad. It isn't just being sorry enough. Repentance literally, biblically, is when my mind changes. To repent is to change the mind. It's to change my thought pattern. It's to change my beliefs. Because all of my behaviors flow out of my beliefs. So when I believe that I'll, I'll never find a relationship where somebody will stick with me, I'm probably going to go from one relationship to the next not sticking with people because I don't think they'll stick with me. See, so the lie takes root, and I need to repent of the lie and come back to the truth. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the kind of sorrow that God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. So the goal is good, right? There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. In other words, it's not just an emotional thing. It isn't just feeling bad or feeling sorry. It is instead coming to own my, my stuff so that I can give that to God and change my mind and my beliefs and start to walk in salvation and walk in freedom. 
I think if you want a picture of what that looks like biblically, you go to Judas and Peter. Both of them essentially betrayed Christ. Judas sold him out and got him killed. Peter denied being his follower and denied being his friend, and both of them had to face their sin. Judas faces his sin by feeling sorry for himself, withdrawing further from God, and eventually taking his own life. It wasn't a godly kind of repentance. It was something else that was emotional. It was kind of a self-loathing. Peter, on the other hand, is confronted by Jesus, feels the weight of his sin, but deals honestly with Christ, turns it around, and becomes a great leader who who spoke very boldly about Jesus from that moment onward. One is biblical repentance. The other is just kind of the emotional mess that we can become when we don't focus on the grace of God. And that kind of leads to number four, and that is freedom flourishes under grace. Freedom flourishes under grace. If you want freedom from the bondage and freedom from the stronghold and freedom to what to the lies that have taken hold of you, you've got to become familiar with what grace is all about. I think we're used to the rules and we're used to the performance-oriented Christian life. A lot of us kind of grew up that way. What is Christianity? Well, you know, Jesus started this movement, and we don't, well, we've got this list of things we don't do, like, you know, dance or cuss or chew or run around with those who do or something. I don't know. And so we've got these rules that we follow, but Jesus really comes after the heart instead and teaches us something much deeper than that, shows us a kind of grace that the rest of the world may not understand that the rest of the world may not show. John chapter 1, the Bible says that the Word became a human being, speaking of Jesus. He became a human being, and He was full of grace and truth. So He never backs down on truth, but He never stops showing grace either. He's the perfect mixture of both. I wish I could be that as a parent and as a husband, and as just as a man in this world, if I could stand boldly for truth and also always be showing grace, that'd be a great mixture. And Jesus embodied them perfectly. He was full of both. And he gives us a kind of grace that we desperately need. In other words, Jesus himself is the author of the truth that ultimately sets you free. And he's a practitioner of the grace that you desperately need. I I think my life really changed dramatically when I came to understand that I wasn't messing up because I didn't love God enough. I wasn't messing up because I didn't have a good handle on the rules. I was messing up a lot because I didn't understand just how much He loved me. I, I was blowing it because I didn't have a real picture of grace But when you look at the cross and you see the gospel, the goodness of Jesus' death for our sin and his resurrection, and you begin to understand that he willingly paid this ultimate price to clear us, cleanse us, free us, when you get the scandalous nature of grace and of the cross, all of a sudden it motivates you to live in freedom, to pursue a life that is no longer under bondage. And so freedom thrives and flourishes under grace, okay? Fifth truth is this. Freedom continues as we live by more truth. So I'm repenting of my sin. I'm coming under grace, and I'm going to live under grace, and now I start to collect God's truth into my heart and into my life so that I can deal with the darts that Satan shoots my way. So when that lie comes in that says you're not lovable, 
I go back to scripture that says, God so loved you, he gave his son for you. When I start to believe you'll never be good enough, I, I can go back to the scriptures that say, Christ became my sin so that I could become the righteousness of God in him, that he makes me miraculously and graciously good enough. Not because I've performed well, but because he gave his son for me as a sacrifice. And so every lie that you believe about not being worthy, not being acceptable, the Bible has a truth for that. He has made us acceptable in Christ. That over and over, Scripture gives us the truth that we need that becomes our sword of the Spirit, our shield of faith. It's everything I need to fight and to battle in this life. The fact is, what God says about you and speaks over you is very different than what you often speak over yourself. There's a passage in Romans 8 that I want to read from a paraphrase, a message paraphrase, because of the, the couple of the meanings that, that are drawn out. The Bible says this, when the arrival of Jesus, with the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Now, let me stop for a second. In Romans chapter 7, that's the part where Paul says, man, the things I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do. And the things I know I'm not supposed to do, I wind up doing those things. And the good things I know I ought to be doing, I can't seem to do those at all. And I think all of us live in the 7th of Romans sometimes. So when we feel that, why, why don't I do the right thing? Why can't I figure this out? Why can't I straighten this out? He then comes and says that that dilemma, that, that sort of paradox of why can't I get out of this, that dilemma is solved by Jesus. He goes on, those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. In other words, when you know Jesus and you trust in him and you begin a new life in a relationship with Christ, you are free. You are not condemned anymore. You will not be disowned. You will not be rejected by the Father. He loves his kids. When he adopts you into his family, he doesn't unadopt. He draws you in. And on the basis of what Jesus did for you, he speaks over you and says about you, you are not condemned. And so when that voice, maybe from another person, speaks condemnation over you and looks down the nose at you and begins to pronounce judgment on you because of your appearance or your performance or, or some failure in your life or some missed opportunity and that snarl, that sneer, it digs so deep. I can go back and say, God, what do you say about that? And God says, you are not condemned. Those voices might condemn you. That is not the voice of God. My voice says, if you've trusted in Jesus, you are free. You are not condemned. We need God's truth and God's grace to overrule the lies that we believe in our heart. I have three kids, they're 16, 8, and 5. We spread them out just for the fun of it. And uh, <laughs> my 8-year-old one night was going to bed, and he had uh, he'd had some trouble at school one day because he had forgotten some stuff. And then, and then at home, he'd forgotten something that was kind of important. And, and you know how kids did. I mean, I never forget anything, but, but my kids do. And uh, so well, I've struggled with forgetfulness, and I do dumb things because I'm forgetful. So my, my little boy said to me, I'm just, I just can't remember anything. 
I just have such a bad memory. I just can't remember anything. And I remember sort of taking him at that bedtime prayer time and sort of getting his face in mind. Look me in the eyes, Sam. I got something you got to hear. I said, you have a good memory. And he didn't say anything, and he looks a little confused. And I said, how I know that is God made your brain, and God makes good things. God gave you a good brain. He gave you a good memory. And so you can remember things. See, we start to rehearse all the things we're bad at and all the failures we've... Sometimes we repeat some of the same mistakes, not because it was inevitable that we would repeat them, but because we convince ourselves, this is my only option. I must have to mess this up again because that's just what I do. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You rebuke it and you go back to the truth of Scripture that says you are not condemned. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You're created in the very image of God. He adores you. He sets his affection on you. And while others may judge and assess you based on your appearance or based on your performance or based on your achievement, he looks at you as his creation and he looks at you as his beloved child and he desires to adopt you into his own family and he gave his son Jesus to pay the price of your sins and when you receive Jesus, you are brought into the family of God forever and he adores you and he admires you because you are a work of his creation and his recreation. You are the evidence of the power of God at work in this world. That's the truth of God about who you are. I, I say to guys a lot, when I meet with them and have coffee with them, and they're like, man, I just, I'm doing this dumb thing, you know, why do I keep doing this? And I've learned to repeat this phrase over and over, that one of the most destructive forces on this planet is a man who doesn't know who he is. That when you don't know your identity, when you forget who you are, you are destructive, like a wrecking ball. But when you understand, this is who I am in Christ. I'm a new creature. I have new desires. I have a new way of life before me. And even when I mess up, he is still my friend. He is still my father. He is still here for me. When you hear that truth and it rebukes those lies, you begin to flourish in freedom. Now, some of you maybe who are here this morning have hung on to some stuff. The video that played before, you saw those rocks dropping. And I think that we have this tendency throughout life, and it starts in childhood and goes onward. It, it, it comes from our sibling rivalries. It comes from our moms and our dads. It comes from interactions that we had with other adults and teachers and pastors. And there are those painful moments, and there are those difficult things that when we're five and ten years old, we don't know how to deal with them, so we just... We just put the rock in the bag on our back, right? And, and then you go through teen years, and man, uh, people have asked me, we had a, this hypothetical conversation recently about if you could delete any two years of your life, what two years would they be? And I instantly went, junior high. Like, don't make me go back there, right? Because there was a lot of, lot of issues in junior high, and so you collect all this stuff, and, and, and then you get into high school, and of course, that's way easier. Um, and so you go through those years, and... You keep collecting stuff, and then you hit adulthood, and you, you get married or, or go through relationship issues, and you just, you just keep on collecting it, and you keep on collecting it. And the fact is, all of those offenses and all those lies and all those hurts and all that pain, it can be dropped at the foot of the cross, and Jesus, as your friend, as your Savior, will come into your life and help you deal with it. 
and he'll bring about forgiveness and healing. And it may be a process. You may need to enter into recovery. You may need to get counseling. You may need a group of friends that will help and support you. You may need a pastor, a church that can, can pour truth into your life. You may need lots of things ongoing. But for some of you, you, you just need right now to say, I am not okay. I need to talk to Jesus about the stuff in my life that isn't okay. And I need to trust him to heal me by his grace. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.